Welcome to the Robert Lewis Sermons Podcast, an archive of Robert Lewis's sermons while at Fellowship Bible Church in Little Rock, Arkansas. We hope you are encouraged and deepen in your love of Christ while enjoying this podcast. Here is this week's message. Bill Wellens and I had a very unique privilege. We got to travel to Denver, Colorado and do some time of reflection. And in our time there, we had the opportunity to also attend a very special conference, kind of a one-of-a-kind conference. It was entitled The Church of the 21st Century. And I think for four days, we really delighted in what I consider a who's who's list of Christian thinkers and change analysts and church practitioners who are quite famous around the United States. Uh, One of those in particular who was there was George Gallup, the famous pollster. And uh, some of you might be surprised, maybe not, but he is a delightful and very wonderful Christian man. And in his his address to our uh, body of um, uh, men, he spoke using all kinds of statistics and polls and charts and graphs about what Americans think and how Christians believe and behave. His primary focus on that particular evening concerned Christians who make an impact. And Gallup pointed out that today, 80% of Americans who are polled about what kind of faith they have, what kind of religion they profess, 80% of those claim that they are Christians. And yet he pointed out that in in his polls, as he probed a little further about what they meant about professing the name Christian, as he probed into their lifestyles, he found that only 10% of this much larger 80% had had any remarkable difference in their lifestyle result as professing the name Christian. The rest, the other part of that 80%, he called, and I quote, fruitless, in the sense that they bore no tangible difference in the way they lived out their particular lifestyle. In a sense, it would be indistinguishable from anyone else who's living day to day in the United States. Now that was kind of bad news in one sense, and it was disappointing, but Gallup did not spend his time there bemoaning the fact that there's a large section of the Christian church or those who profess to be Christians who are fruitless. Instead, he extolled what he said were the extraordinary virtues of that 10% in the way that they lived out their life and the significant impact that they had. Here's what he said. He said, these people are admired by their friends. They are respected by their peers, and they have an impact that is far more significant than their numbers. Because of this, they have a significant force in changing America. Just 10% of that 80% who profess the name of Christ, Gallup went on to say, are having an incredible impact on the life, on the morality, and the values of American culture. He says that these people are really different, really different, and they are outliving everyone else. In fact, he has a book coming out that's entitled The Saints Among Us, in which he will detail out some of the things that I just told you much further. When I listened to him talk, I have to admit I found the use of the word saint to be quite interesting, the saints among us. Because when he said that, I kind of had to reflect back and I thought, you know, if this book had been written in some other century than the 20th century, let's say it was written in the days of the early church, I don't think he would have entitled it the saints among us. I think he would have just said the Christians among us. 
Because as Christianity spread out around the globe, as it had an impact, as you read writers of antiquity, the thing that stands out about these Christians was their lifestyle. They impacted people. They, they acted different. They carried values that excelled above all the other values in their particular culture. I mean, they were honest. And in the Roman Empire of the first and second century, honesty was something that people just remembered. <laughs> they were generous. Uh, they were pure. But now we come to the 20th century. And Gallup, choosing a word that identifies this minority of people having a significant impact, he, he discards the word Christian and he uses the word saints. The saints among us. I think that we may be coming to a time in this decade and in the next century where the Christian church might have to discard the word Christian because Christian might be a political party here. Christian might be a social group. Christian might just be a place that you attend. But Christian may not mean lifestyle. And perhaps those of us who are orthodox in the faith might have to come up with some kind of other term. Gordon MacDonald has just released a book in which he chooses a term. You may or may not like it. I'm not sure saint would fit in the 21st century. It sounds a little uh, too perfectionistic, but the word that he uses is Christ follower. Something to distinguish that small group from the rest who tend to be passive and maybe a bit too worldly, who tend to be caught in the rut of ritual, but who are anything but Christian as this book expounds it to be. What do we mean by our faith? You know, that's a great challenge today. And we're about to open up a new series, the book of Hebrews. And I think if Hebrews does anything as we move through it, it will expound on and expand the concept of what we mean when we say we have faith or we are Christians. That's what this whole book is about. Now I want to challenge you. It's not an easy book. It's a very doctrinal book and very Jewish in its orientation. And even today, I think we'll have to work a little to get the feel from it. But I think as we move into this next century, it's a very needed book as well. Now let's set a little context for this letter to start you off before we actually read the verses about this particular letter to the Hebrews. Uh, that gives part of it away already. It's written to Jews, Jews that are not in Judaism anymore, Jews who are Christians. And we know that this is probably a follow-up letter to the Jews who are in Jerusalem. There was a previous letter written to them uh, right after the disciples fanned out around the world. Uh, there was a letter written by James to these same Jewish believers in 45 AD. This particular letter comes 20 years later. But in that first letter to James, he writes them about the need for their faith uh, to, to be fruitful. Uh, they had lived their whole lives in a culture that said you had to work your way to God. And when Jesus Christ came across Palestine, He said, you don't. You have to believe your way to God. And then out of that belief comes a new life. And they bought the first part, but because they wanted to get away from works, they had a hard time going ahead and moving back into fruitful deeds. And so James writes what Luther calls that right straw epistle, and he says... 
faith without works is dead. You need to get back to making your faith work. Yes, it's faith alone, but it moves on into a lifestyle. So they needed a little correction there in that early days of their Christianity in 45 A.D. But now it's not 45 A.D. The book of Hebrews is written, most think, around 65, 68 A.D. It's 20 years later. And as you read through this, look, this book, you can't help but get a sense that the issues are now far graver than 20 years previous. The initial excitement and novelty of the Christian life is now gone. These people are 20 years older. They've grown older, but they haven't grown up. And that's part of the problem. They're not wiser in their faith, though they're well on in years. The danger that is now present is that their Christianity is being tempted, and in some case, cases already is, merging back with their Jewish culture and even being tempted to move back with old-line Judaism itself, which would be apostasy. That's why according to Hebrews 13.22, as we get to the very end of the letter, he concludes by saying this letter is an exhortation to you. That means he's having to, to urge them. He's being, he's being strong with them. If you have your Bible open to Hebrews, at the top it probably says the epistle to the Hebrews. Maybe a better way just to set the context, we probably ought to write over the word epistle, scratch that out and say, no, it's the exhortation to the Hebrews. You can almost feel this writer shouting at the people because of the dangers that are around them to awaken them. They need some awakening. As we'll see, their faith is no longer challenging their culture. Fact is, they're in danger of drifting towards becoming acceptable to their culture. And that's where I want us to be thinking about ourselves and our own Christianity. See, they're wanting to blend in. They're tired of the tension between them and their forefathers and their culture and their ways in this this, this city of Jerusalem. They, they kind of want to endorse it now. They, they want to mix it up with their friends again. They, they feel like there's too much distance and too much strain. So now, to relieve that, they're tempted to begin to compromise. In case you don't feel that same tension, that's going on right now all across our country in churches, in denominations. If you think about it, we're wading into the same waters in the 90s that this young church was wading into in 68 A.D. We, we have denominations all across our country who are wanting to play it safe with society. We have churches that, that, that want to be acceptable. They don't want too much tension between them and the community. Uh, they don't want to look too different because to look too different would put strain on just everyday relationships. Uh, they, they want to say things that have kind of followed what others have already set down who are secular and now they want to come back behind them in their trail and endorse it as spiritual. If you don't believe that, read the papers. Watch the news. Watch the news as we address issues, social issues, giant social issues like feminism or abortion or homosexuality or marriage and what is a family unit or human sexuality 
or poverty or any of those things. Listen to the arguments. And see if you don't see a church and a denomination or denominations who are trying to say it in such a way that culture won't feel upset with them. That groups won't react violently to them. But they can appear compassionate and safe. Still relevant, yet blended. And the tension is gone. The doors are open. Everybody feels okay. We're always tempted to do that. I bet you as a Christian, because it doesn't just stop with churches, it filters down to the same individual. You know, when you, when you became a Christian like I did in a family of non-Christians at the time, and your friends all around you were non-Christians, there was tension there. All of a sudden, you were different. There were certain things that you used to do that all of a sudden now you didn't. And when your friends, friends quizzed you about it, you said, well, I'm, I'm a Christian now. <laughs> I remember going to a party in Fayetteville and we were all in the car and we were driving out there and everybody started popping the beer cans and passed one back and for the first time in my life I said no. And, and you should have heard the car. It was as if, you know, somebody had been murdered, executed. There was just absolute silence. Everybody just sat there stiff. Nobody touched each other. There was a weirdo in the car. Everybody turned around and finally one guy had guts enough to say, why? What's your problem? I said, I'm a Christian now. And then it got colder. And I wanted out of there. I wanted somehow to say, hey, I'm okay. And try to tell them things that would make it feel more comfortable for all of us. You know, that was tough enough being a young Christian. But when it's 20 years later and you still have those tensions, when you still are with certain friends and family and you can't, you just have to skirt around issues. Do you feel that? You have to, you know, you don't want to look different and it just gets tiring. It was tiring for these people 20 years later. You know, today, George Barna, who is a kind of a church futurist, so to speak, he takes a lot of polls like Gallup does, but he's noticing a very remarkable trend. I think we've even seen it here to some respects as I've interacted with people. He wrote a book that's subtitled What Christians Need to Know About Life in the Year 2000. And here's what he said. He said, in general, America's religious faith in 2000 will be a combination of existing faiths. People will recreate their own systems of faith. They will blend the best of various religions known as syncretism. This approach to spirituality was quite common in Old Testament times, and it earned a stern rebuke of the prophets. By the way, I remember when I was touring Israel once, we were up in Galilee, and we were in a Jewish synagogue that had been built about um, 100 B.C. It was a time where the Jews had kind of integrated and compromised with the Greeks and the Greek mythologies and all that. And all that was left of this great synagogue was just this beautiful mosaic floor as you walked into the kind of the sanctuary area. And in this mosaic floor, it was, it was a big circle of the different months of the year. And in that mosaic were pictures of the Mosaic Law of Moses, of certain miraculous events that occurred during the life of Jesus, and peppered all throughout those, those symbols, those Jewish symbols, were signs of the zodiac and astrology. It was a blended faith. I guess you came in and you listened to Moses and thank your lucky stars at the same time, you know? <laughs> That's something that's not new to where we live, whether you know it or not. Listen, 
Barna says, Americans not quite satisfied with their options will create their own religions. They will mix and match the best of each faith to which they are exposed and emerge with a synthetic faith. It will be fascinating to watch. In all likelihood, they will seek a blend of elements that will give them, now listen, a sense of control, personal comfort, and acceptance to their community, and also provide a laissez-faire style philosophy of life. He even goes on and says, from Christianity, they might borrow Jesus' philosophy of love and acceptance. From Eastern religions, they might borrow issues related to each person being his or her own God capable of creating and resolving issues through his or her own way. From Mormonism, they will extract perhaps the emphasis upon relationships and family. The 90s will be a time for designer religions. Blended faiths. No commitments to institutions. But a way in which I can feel okay and safe and the tensions will be gone and yet with a sense of approval before God. Now we who are in the Orthodox Christian faith would reject that because ours is not a made-up faith. That's what Hebrews starts off with. Ours is a revealed faith. You either take it or leave it. You don't blend it, mix it, and match it. It's not a recipe. It's revelation. And yet these Jewish Christians were tempted to make it a recipe. Now that's a feel for the book as we start. You see, these Hebrew Christians were thinking about merging Judaism and Christianity into a syncretistic blend. But the writer will tell them all the way through the book, if you do that, in that process, you will lose your uniqueness. You will lose your power. And in the end, you will lose your life, your spiritual life. I don't think there's anybody here necessarily who's trying to blend what we teach here with, let's say, an Eastern religion. But as I get towards the back end of this message, I want to show you how I think we do do some other things that create a faith that is not nearly as unique as it was explained to be. So let's look here and let's begin at the beginning in verse 1 where the writer, first of all, draws us to the uniqueness of Jesus. He says, God, after He spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, and of course these Jewish believers would know exactly the kind of prophets He's talking about. In these last days, He has spoken to us in His Son. Actually, in Greek, it doesn't say His. It just says, in Son. Jesus is God's keynote speaker to humanity. A number of years ago when Sharon and I lived in Tucson, I went to a banquet put on by the conquistadors of Tucson. They were a social club there. And before the Tucson Open, the PGA Golf Championship, they had a sports banquet. And uh, you always wanted to get into that because it was a host of celebrities and stars and sports figures. And on one occasion in the four years I was there, I got to go and I sat at this table surrounded by the likes of like Yogi Berra and Joe Garagiola, uh, Johnny Unitas, Hank Aaron, Bob Hope. There was, I mean, it was a who's who's list that was there and it was to celebrate sports in the city. On this particular evening, uh, the keynote speaker 
was called the world's greatest athlete. He had won the hearts of Americans. Uh, he had just returned from the Summer Olympics where he had won the decathlon, Bruce Jenner. And I remember sitting there as Bruce Jenner walked up to the platform and thinking, man, now this is a sports banquet. I mean, you got these celebrities that are just off the chart. And then on top of that, you've got the world's greatest athlete who's the keynote speaker. It just doesn't get any better than this. Less lobsters drop out of the sky or <laughs> Swedish women's ski team comes in. That's an inside joke for you visitors. But really, I, I just thought to myself, this, it just, this is the world's greatest athlete speaking. Well, that's how the feel of this letter begins. I'm just trying to let you see how it would feel to these readers who knew that God had spoken in many portions and in many ways. They remember, they remember Moses, and they remember David, and they remember the prophets and the visions and the dreams and the angels and the burning bush. But they also knew in this final day, in these last days, God had put on the podium the ultimate communicator. Son, whose life communicated in pictures even more than in words. And nothing that would come after and nothing that had come before would equal or rival that incredible piece of communication. Now, why couldn't they see that? That's what he was saying. Why couldn't they see that? Certainly, the apostles and the prophets who came after Jesus never sought to supersede Jesus. Now, we have the Muslim faith where Mohammed came on 400 years after Jesus, borrowing from Christianity and Judaism, and saying he's a greater prophet than Jesus. He certainly did that. But the apostles and prophets who came immediately after Jesus, they never sought to try to challenge Jesus' supremacy in any way. If anything, all they tried to do was try to explain and expound on this great Son. That's all. Kind of like when you watch on television when the President speaks. Now what happens after the President speaks? Don't you get a host of Tom Brokaw's and etc., etc., who try to tell you what he just said? Okay, that's all the apostles and prophets did that followed Jesus Christ. They did not try to challenge Him. They did not try to supersede Him. All they tried to do is to help us really understand in totality what He meant by what He said. Now, some of the apostles had to learn that the hard way, that Jesus stood head and shoulders above everybody else. If you will, keep your finger there and turn back to Mark chapter 9. One of those was Peter. You know, Peter was a guy who was never at a loss for words if he could get his foot out of his mouth to say them. But in this particular occasion, we see that same thing. But in this moment, I think, as they were still probably trying to deliberate over who Jesus was, who He really was, I think this moment set Jesus head and shoulders above anyone else in these men's minds, especially as they related to their Jewish heritage. Now look what happens. If you remember, it's the transfiguration. But in verse 2 of chapter 9, it says that after six days or six days later, Jesus took Peter, James, and John and brought them up to a high mountain. And He was transfigured before them. And His garments became radiant and exceedingly white as no launderer on earth can whiten them. And Elijah appeared. Boy, that was a hero to Peter. And Moses appeared. And they were talking to Jesus. And Peter, so excited, says... Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. 
Let us make three tabernacles, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. Do you hear the heresy in that? You're one of equals, one among equals. And here's, here's the greatest prophet who ever was. And here's the greatest lawgiver who ever was. And now you're the Messiah, one among friends, equals. And let's build a tabernacle for each one of you. That's apostasy. That's heresy. <laughs> if you'll notice in verse 7, a cloud formed. It was like God was up there, the Father, listening to this suggestion. And though it's not written here, I wrote my Bible, Him saying, What? <laughs> what did you say, pygmy? Looking down at Him? This is my beloved Son. Listen to Him. The word listen there means... Give constant and focused heed to Him only. And if you'll notice in the next verse, what happens? All at once, Peter looked around and everybody was gone. Elijah the great prophet was gone. Moses the great lawgiver was gone. And what does it say at the very end of the text? Except Jesus alone. Now my friends, you can take all the great religious teachers in all of human history and line them up you can take all those who have prophesied, all those who say they've experienced visions and dreams, and you can put them next to the sun, and there is no match. In fact, to even attempt to match is for you to shout heresy at God as if there's one among equals here. There's no equality here at all. There's nothing but inequality of any man who tries to match up with Jesus Christ. There is no contest it's not a competitive thing. He stands head and shoulders above them all. And to help us see that, the writer of Hebrews just enumerates the credentials of Jesus Christ. And I'll mention them very briefly. We won't go into them in any depth. But turn back to Hebrews because, you know, like me or you, if, uh, if a keynote speaker is going to come to the platform, you need to say why he's so special. And that's exactly what the writer does here, starting in verse 2. He says, He's spoken to us in His Son, and then He says this about Him, whom He appointed heir of all things, through whom also He made the world. In other words, here's Jesus' first credential on His resume. Jesus is the originator of human history and the ultimate heir of human history. Now that part sounds pretty good on your resume, doesn't it? Today all this massive change we see around us, all these disturbing events. Uh, we see morality declining, violence increasing. And time to time I'm meeting with friends here in the church and I can see kind of the despair. They probably just watch the nightly news and they go, where is it all leading? Where is it all leading? You know, this little statement about him being the heir of all things is helpful at this point. You know where they're leading? Right into his hands. Because he owns it all. He created it. And He's the heir of it. Human history terminates with Jesus Christ. That's what this says. Secondly, it says that Jesus is God exactly. Not partially. Not with glimpses. Not in a moment. Exactly. It says in verse 3, And He is the radiance of His glory and the exact representation of God's nature. That's why Jesus said, He who has seen the Father, or He who has seen Me, has seen the Father. You don't need anything else. 
Thirdly, Jesus is the force behind the universe. Notice it says, and He upholds all things by the word of His power. Now we have a mysterious universe, and I don't know if you've been reading in Time and Newsweek, but as you get out with these new instruments into space and as they survey the planets and the heavens and the galaxies, all this data that's flowing in is creating all kinds of new theories. In fact, the central theory of the Big Bang is now even being questioned with all the new data that's coming in. Scientists are rethinking how the universe began, uh, how it spun out the way it did, what's holding it together, what's the force behind it now. You know what this verse says? This verse says, and this is amazing, that it's Jesus holding it together. Now that would be laughable in some ways. But the Scripture maintains that from cover to cover. That this man that walked the earth is also the God who holds this universe together. That's why when Paul was on Mars Hill and he was talking to philosophers, he helped them understand that it wasn't Atlas holding up the world. Remember, those were the great thinkers of the day. But it was Jesus who was holding up the world as He proclaimed Him as the unknown God. And He made this statement to them. He said, in Him we live and move and have our being. <laughs> Think about that. I remember I was in Yosemite once with some hippies and we were talking in the 60s and I, we got in this big discussion and I said, but listen, I was still a young Christian, I said, in Him we live and we move and we have our being. One guy was sitting there and he went, wow. <laughs> far out. And it is far out. It really is. He's the force behind the universe. Then it says in the last line of chapter, verse 3, it says He's the answer to human misery. Notice it says, when he, sat, he, when, he, when he made purification of sin, He sat down at the right hand of the Majesty on high. It's this last credential where it becomes very personal. If I can use an analogy, you know, we thought in the 40s and, and whatever that FDR's New Deal was going to save us. Then it was LBJ's Great Society. We're a country who thinks society will save us. But it hasn't, has it? Communists thought communism would save them. All we need is a revolution, a new start, a new beginning. And uh, it failed. Now we're in the new age, and we got people who are proclaiming all this incredible inner power that we just need to get in touch with and release, and the new self will save us. It's an illusion. That's all it is. It's a fantasy where we create images of power, but they won't be implemented because they're not there. And we look at our world and we see all kinds of problems of poverty and crime and greed. We say government's the problem, drugs is the problem, violence is the problem. This passage says sin is the problem. Sin, and it's in you. And you can't clean it up. You can't get in touch with a power within you that will make it work. Society can't shape you with an environment that will make it work. Jesus is only the only one that can clean it up. That's what it means by purification. He's the only one. And He's done it. That's why He went and sat down. He's not still working at it. He's done it. Now who can compare with those credentials? That's what you should feel when you move through these statements about the incomparable, supreme Son of God. Now why is it important to extol those virtues? Why is He saying these things at the beginning of the letter? He wants these people who are now wanting to play it safe, who are now wanting to be comfortable, 
who are now wanting to relieve the tension with their Jewish culture. He wants them to think again about who they're going to compromise on. Who else is like this Jesus? Who else has lived at Jesus' level? Who else is worth giving allegiance to your life to? Those are great questions for you. Who else is spending your time thinking about? If you're headed towards Him at the end of human history, it's worth thinking about. And why would you want to blend Jesus with anybody else? Why would you want to lower His status in putting Him with Mohammed or Buddha or somebody else, or as these people will, with the angels? Do you make Him more or less? See, that's what they were doing. Now, if you'll look in verse 4 all the way to the end of the chapter, Jesus is being compared with angels. And I think it invites the question, why? All through there, it talks about Jesus and angels. And I'm not going to look at that. That's going to, that would take us a while, and we don't have time. But suffice it to say this, historian William Barclay says at this time, angels were real important to the Jews. Now, we're not talking about the Christians, the Jews. They saw the angels as the intermediaries between God and man. It was Moses who got the law from angels. It was uh, uh, angels who went out and did God's work, rendering service. And it says that, by the way, in verse 14 of this chapter. It was angels who heard the prayers of men and took them to God. At least that's how that had been crafted. The Jews thought everybody had a guardian angel, every nation had a guardian angel, every child had a guardian angel. So angels were real big. And they formed the central place in Judaism of getting to God. Now 20 years ago, these Jewish Christians who had just become new Christians and, and listened to Christ and believed Christ when He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through Me. They would have rejected that angels are the primary intermediaries between God and man, wouldn't they? They looked to Christ, the incomparable Christ. But see, that was 20 years ago. Now it's 20 years later, and they had lost their jobs in that 20 years because of their faith in Jesus, the incomparable Son. It was 20 years later, and they'd been rejected by their families, and their families still hadn't made up with them because of their faith in the incomparable Son. In fact, some of them had lost their inheritance because of it. It was 20 years later, and Jesus still hadn't returned. And there's some question marks because they thought He was going to come back immediately and set up His kingdom. It's 20 years later, and the apostles are all gone. They lack leadership. The apostles are all out through the world spreading the gospel. And so over this 20 years, there's been a slow slide. And they've been tempted. In fact, they're there willing to exchange comfort and acceptance and no tension in place of challenge, change, and evangelism. <laughs> That's where they are right now. Now the question is, could we be there? See, we can't leave quite yet. Can we be there? Can the church get there? Even while it's preaching, even while it's extolling these very virtues, can you get there to where those things are nice for Sunday? We make those things mentioned on Sunday. We talk about how important it is to evangelize and challenge and change on Sunday. But see, we don't want the tension on Monday. We want acceptance and comfort and safety. See, that's the issue. Gradually, I think a, a, an idea popped up in somebody's mind in this Christian community there in Jerusalem. They came up with an idea of how to blend back into Judaism, but at the same time, how to hold on to Jesus Christ. You see, where there's a will, there's always a compromise, right? Where there's a will, there's a compromise. 
I've listened to people talk about how their marriage is this way and they're in love and all that, and 20 years later they're ready to leave, and they can do the greatest job on taking the Scriptures and twisting them so that their will can look like God's will. See, here's how they did it. And by the way, this became a heresy later on in the Christian church. It still is among the Jehovah Witnesses. In fact, if you have a Jehovah Witness come to your door, this is the very issue that we're talking about. They, and it's on your outline, there's a blank. Their compromise was this. You can fill it in. They decided to reduce Jesus to angelic status. Make Him an angel. A special intermediary. It keeps Him special. It keeps Him one through whom I can pray to God. It keeps Him the person who's interacting with me on a daily basis from God. It keeps, keeps Jesus special, but it keeps me comfortable. And that's why the writer uses chapters 1 and 2 to spend so much time trying to help them see you can't mash Jesus in to angelic dimensions. It's like trying to fold a mattress and put it in a matchbox. It just won't work. Now that was their problem. That was their compromise. But you can't leave this chapter, quite frankly, without the question being begged. And what is the question? The question is, what have we reduced Jesus to? How have we taken Him down from that lofty position as Son? How have we shaved off some of the special and unique edges of our faith so that we can fit in to our world and not feel tension and feel acceptance and stay in control rather than be under control? How have we done that? You know, in your outlines it says, our present compromise. If I can ask you to do this, you might just scratch out the word our and put my present compromise and leave it blank for this hour. That's a project I want to give you. I would like for you to go home maybe sometime this week, and I ho hope you don't let this go by, because this means just what I'm saying it means, and that is that we use these things as an event, not as a lifestyle. But to think on, how have I compromised Christ? How have I kept Him from being the full Son? What have I done to reduce Him? And use that as a meditation time. If nothing comes up and you feel affirmed, great. But it's worth considering because this book asked us to consider it. Now just to help you think a bit, let me just give you some, some things I see, just generally, starting from the guy who rarely goes to church to the regular church goer. how oftentimes we reduce Christ to something less than He is. Let me give you three ways we do that. I think sometimes we reduce Jesus from a God who we have the privilege to get to know to an event that we just periodically celebrate. Now we see that, don't we? Not necessarily from us here today, but during the course of the year, Christmas will arrive, and then Easter will arrive, and there'll be some people out in their homes this morning, right now, watching NFL football, who'll say, I need to go to the event, the Christ event, won't they? And so they'll come and they'll attend and it'll make them feel okay. They won't feel this discomfort between this church they pass every day and this Christian religion that's worldwide and themselves because somehow they've done their religious duty. Now some take it a little further and they attend church on a more regular periodic basis. They come, you know, one or two Sundays a month and, and they sit in the back row and they listen and it makes them feel good. But the idea that is so central to the Christian faith that Jesus is not an event 
but a person who walks out of here with you. A person who's asking you to respond to Him. A person who's going to hold you accountable for everything that you do in your life. A person who wants to grace you with His presence and interact with you. That thought is intensely uncomfortable. It brings accountability. It's a formidable challenge. It brings tension. And it makes me feel threatened that I might have to be different. No. Give me the Christ of the end. It's much easier. Then there are some of us who reduce Jesus from a Lord who responds to what we do to simply a friend who overlooks periodically what we do. Now, is Jesus a friend? <laughs> Absolutely, He's a friend. That says in Scripture. But that's not all He is. See, we're talking about the full sun, not partial sunlight. He's Lord. At least it says that here in our passage in verse 10. But now what happens if we reduce Him to a friend who can overlook what we do. Look what it says in chapter 2. Let's just read. It's the first warning passage of Hebrews. It says, for this reason. Now what's the reason? The reason that he's talking about here is he says, for this reason, is trying to reduce Jesus to something less than he is. If we try to do this, or our temptation to do this, we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard, lest we drift away from it. As someone said, the most delightful way of dying is drifting off to sleep, isn't it? There's a subtle drift that's implied here where we move from the full Jesus to the partial, compromised Jesus. And yet, look what he says. And this is a warning. And this is where Hebrews, let me tell you, is so uncomfortable, even to read it. It says, verse 2, For if the word spoken through angels... Remember, angels gave the word to Moses, the Mosaic Law the word spoken through angels proved unalterable and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense that is a payment remember when the law came to Moses Moses set it down in front of the people and says if you do this this will happen if you don't do this this will happen if you do this you'll get this kind of blessing if you don't do this you'll get this kind of curse and it didn't matter and the Jews spent hundreds of years proving that truth out because every time they did something that went against the law they got the just recompense just as God said and every time they did what was right, they received the reward. The law was unalterable. It was unyielding whether you liked it or not. Now based on that, he says, verse 3, how shall we, and you might circle we and put we Christians because this is a book to Christians. How shall we Christians escape if we neglect so great a salvation? In other words, how shall we escape if we neglect God's final word? That was a partial word. The Son is the final, full word. If we just take it for granted, if we walk away from it, if we try to reduce it into something we can manage, how shall we escape? And it doesn't answer it, does it? In the Greek it does, just by the way it's asked. The answer is, you won't. You won't escape. God has a world. He has a system that He has set in place by His own sovereignty, still, that if you go against His salvation, and we're not talking about going to heaven, we're talking about your marriage, your personal life, your purity, you know, your finances, everything that He's addressed in His Word, if you go against it, you will not be delivered. You will experience compromise and guilt and pain and life will be much harder than it was ever intended to be. You will not escape.
Yes, Jesus is a friend to needy sinners, but not to predisposed, premeditated sinners. Not those who would reduce Him down to just a friend who can look the other way when He decides to go against the written revelation which is unalterable, which many denominations and churches are proclaiming. Thirdly, we reduce Jesus from a mentor to a Savior. Notice in verse 2 it says, In these last days He spoke unto us in His Son. I'm afraid that in this generation we've rewritten that line too. And in these last days He's spoken to us in His crucifixion. Now I am not in any way attacking the crucifixion because Jesus offered forgiveness for sin. But that's not the full Jesus. That's not the incomparable Christ that's presented in the Scriptures. He gives us the privilege, and it's a unique privilege, it's a wonderful opportunity. Despite our sinfulness, He gives us the opportunity to actually become like Him. Not in the perfect sense, but nevertheless, in a sense. He gives us His presence, He gives us His Spirit, His Word, His church, His people. He gives us His power, and there's an expectation in all that. And the expectation is not that we go, well, save me when I get messed up. Deliver me when I sin. Help me get out of this ditch. I know I'm going to heaven anyway. That's not the gospel. That's a part of the gospel that we have forgiveness. But the full son, the one that's presented here in Hebrews, is a mentor who when he walked among his fellow friends, his disciples, was not saying to them all the time, now look, it's going to be okay when I die. No, His word to them was consistent. Follow me! Which implies you can be like Him. You can taste the new lifestyle. Chapter 2, verse 3 says that our salvation is great. So great a salvation. And certainly that includes forgiveness for sin. But folks, it also includes deliverance from sin into a Jesus-shaped lifestyle. That's the message to the Christian church in a syncretistic age who wants to blend face and create designer religions, stir recipes that are nothing more than apostasy. Some of you are probably like me. Others of you would never do this, but I like to work in the yard. Somehow it feels good to get out and get your hands dirty and that kind of thing. And one of the things I like to do is plant plants and they kind of become my friends when you've done it yourself and you kind of nurture them and water them and fertilize them and watch them grow and in the process you learn things about them. And one of the things I've learned about the crepe myrtle is, is that it needs a lot of sun. I've got several of them. One of them's in the shade and it's told me it doesn't like it. But the ones in the, sh in the sun, they need that full sun in these hot summer months because in doing so, they bloom. They bear fruit. When I read Hebrews chapter 1, what comes out of here to me is that you and I need full sun if we're to grow spiritually. We have to have it. We need all the rays of Jesus' life. The fact that He is a person, not an event. That He's a Lord and a Savior. That He's a friend and a judge. That He's a forgiver and a director. We need all the rays to be empowered so we can bloom naturally, and fully and abundantly. 
But when we reduce those rays, when we go to our designer mindset and we begin to say, well, I want a little bit of this and I want a little bit of that, I'm going to take His forgiveness here and I'm going to forget what His Word says there. I'm going to overlook this so I can do this, so I can stay in control. I'm not going to do this because this brings too much tension to my life. Nobody gets hurt but you. You. I want you to know that our church here is committed to be a full sun church. And that means that we, at times, as we pay close attention to this word, will feel uncomfortable. I think you probably feel uncomfortable this morning. I certainly felt uncomfortable when I said, I got to preach this, <laughs> but I got to be faithful to the word. There will be times it'll be it'll make us realize that what we're being called to is not necessarily easy. It's going to bring some tension. It might not make us at points acceptable to this community in which we live if we were to hold these particular beliefs and practices. But if we want to be a force for Jesus Christ, there can be no compromise. There can be no designer religion. And I doubt that we'll ever be saints in the sense that we often think of that term, but certainly we can be more than Christian. In the 90s, wouldn't it be nice to know that 80% of this body is a Christ follower? Well, that's the challenge of this great book. Let's pray together. Thank you for listening to the Dr. Robert Lewis Sermon Podcast. If you were encouraged by this message, please rate and review this podcast. In addition, share this with your friends and community. This podcast was produced by the team at Sound of a Rose. You can learn more about the team at soundofarose.com.